I'm David Smith, and you're listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. In this series, we'll be talking with researchers and educators who are working to understand how Christian faith affects teaching, learning, and the way we do education. I'm sitting here today with Steve McMullen, who's Professor of Economics at Hope College, quite nearby. And uh, we're going to be talking today about a book that, that we've actually been working on together, along with some other colleagues, called Digital Life Together, uh, The Challenge of Technology for Christian Schools. And this has been a project trying to understand how the rise of digital devices uh, in the classroom and in the general life of the school is changing the learning culture and the community culture of, of Christian schools in particular. And so we, we brought a number of different research approaches to this to try to get a rich picture of, of what was going on. And for that reason, we also involved multiple researchers. We had a whole research team. And, uh, and Steve, you were, a, you were a member of that team. Now, you come to this as a professor of economics. So I think the first question that would occur to a lot of people is, how does a professor of economics end up in a research team looking at digital technology in K-12 Christian education? Thank you, David. That's a great question. It's actually a question I've been getting my entire career because I started out with my dissertation at the University of North Carolina studying the impact of homework time on academic achievement, uh, looking at big standardized tests that we had through national studies. And anyone who's not an economist usually responded to my dissertation by asking me, how is this economics? But no economists ever asked me that question because within the economics discipline, we have, a, we have a long history of people investigating questions about education, particularly in my subfield, which is labor economics. Uh, now, we think about education primarily as an investment in future skills and these kinds of things and how it interacts with the labor market. But, but for much of my career, I've been doing research about education policy uh, and that's included questions about homework, but also I've done a number of studies about year-round schooling and school calendars. Uh, and the last one just came out about a year and a half ago. And then I've engaged in a bunch of research about school enrollment patterns and competition between uh, public and private schools. None of that has been published yet, but but the world of education research has is a very familiar one to me. And that's that's primarily what I've done with my career. At least, or it's what I did up until like the first six years or so, I'd say. That's most of what I did. So, so what drew you specifically to a project on digital technology? That's a good question. So I, it was really just a bunch of interesting questions. So you hit a certain point, you, you get to the point where you know you have tenure, and then your motivation shifts from what can I publish to prove that I know what I'm doing? And it shifts into questions like, what would be most interesting for me to spend the next few years of my life on? And, and it was just a, a really fascinating question to think about what impact these new technologies have in the classroom, on people's habits. Uh, because, of course, these are questions that we're all asking. Right? The technologies come out so quickly. The new devices radically change the way we interact. And, and there's this constant worry, concern, anxiety, both at a personal level and at, at an academic level, about what the impact is. So... Of course, I'm going to be wanted. I want to be involved in that, and and this was a great chance to do it. So, part of the design of the project was to bring together different research methods to to try to get a richer overall picture of what's happening and a more reliable overall picture of what's happening than if you just slice it one way. So, so what was the what was the angle that you brought into the project? What tools and specialisms and particular kinds of questions were you feeding in? So because I'm an applied microeconomist, that means I'm usually doing work with big data sets. And the questions that we'll ask 
is how can we, using the data we have, how can we make really good, careful comparisons so that we know what impact something is having for reals? We usually try to approximate something like, a, like an experiment because the, the ideal for learning new things, at least in the scientific uh, mindset, would be to have something like an experimental design. So given that, what I brought to a study like this with, with the ability to gather our own data was to think carefully if we want to answer a question about, about the amount of time students are using certain devices or uh, comparing their habits uh, inside of school or outside of school or knowing something about their habits inside of school or outside of school, we'd have to think carefully about who we'd be comparing these students to, who we'd be comparing the teachers to, making sure we had good comparison groups that also had good, good data. And, and, and that meant a lot of survey data. Uh, in our particular book, just about any time there's, there's survey data being used, it usually means a, a bunch of spreadsheets and statistics software behind the scenes, because that's where I found I was able to contribute the most, uh, is to do a real careful job with that part. So when you talk about comparisons, I mean, if I sort of translate this into my, because I'm very layman when it comes to your statistical research, yeah. it, it's, uh, so if we come to the conclusion that students are using laptops for, let's say, four and a half hours a day, we don't know how big a number that is just as a number unless we know totally. what students in other schools are using or what students across North America are using or what students were using 10 years ago or whatever, right? So, exactly. so not being able to interpret a number without, without knowing what, whether it's a good number or a bad number because you don't have a comparison. Yeah, and ideally, uh, because we're, we're investigating this, this big change in technologies within the classroom, we'd want to find another group of students that's very similar in a very similar kind of school but doesn't have the same technology program, and then compare the habits. And even then, you, you might say, well, that's actually not quite the comparison I'd want for all questions. But it is, it is really finding this comparison group or the control group that's similar in all the respects that you care about so that you can draw conclusions then about what is the impact of this particular change. The last thing we want to do is, is draw conclusions about the technology that are really just observations about this school, mm -hmm. which might be unique in any number of different ways. So not just students, this is happening with laptops, but more of this is happening with laptops than right. in this other place, right? So, yeah. yeah. So, so what kind of questions did that lead you into in the project? What, what, what specific things did that get you into investigating? Well, right from the beginning, we wanted to be able to describe how students were using these technologies. And so it was questions about uh, how much time they're spending with their laptops in school and, and outside of school, how much time they were spending with mobile phones and tablets and other sort of complementary devices, how much time they would spend on, on social media. But then we, we immediately started asking also some, some other time use questions at the same time. If, once you start asking how much time they spend on, on their computers, you immediately want to know, well, wait a second, uh, how much time are you watching TV? And are you sleeping? And do you have jobs? And how much time are you spending on, on athletics and outside activities uh, so that you can get a full time use picture? Because you'd want to know whether or not the use of the computers, for instance, was just pushing out the TV. Maybe they're not watching TV anymore and they are using computers. And so that we started asking those questions. But then also it led us into questions about what they were doing on the laptops. Are they, are they doing homework? Are they uh, communicating with their friends? Uh, are they just watching Netflix, uh, if that's allowed? Um, are they engaged in social media? Or, you know, worst case scenario, are they consuming pornography or violent material or engaging in binge shopping when they don't have the money for it? Or, you know, you could go down the list of, of possibly um, problematic behaviors that would, that would be facilitated by a computer. Mm -hmm. 
So we wanted to know all of that. And of course, the question list eventually got far longer than we could reasonably ask. But that, that was where we started, was asking a lot of questions of those kinds. So let's start with this, this real simple baseline thing, which is just how much are students now using digital devices during their day? And is it too much? So I mean, that, that, that idea of too much, what, why is it we think that there's a too much, right? Why, why are we anxious about this, this line without even knowing where the line is of, of kind of just using our devices too much, even if we're doing good things on them? This is a great question. And of course, this is one of the biggest questions that animates concern about technology among parents, among teachers, people in the general public. There's lots and lots of focus on screen time, particularly for young kids. Uh, and part of that comes out of an anxiety. Uh, we've produced these very powerful uh, devices that do so many interesting things that it is very easy to use them a lot. Uh, not just for lots of different purposes, but just to spend a lot of time on them. And I can speak as a parent with a kid who's addicted to YouTube uh, that he would rather be watching YouTube on our Kindle Fire than doing almost any other activity. And second to the Kindle Fire is, is Minecraft. So, so I understand this kind of anxiety. And that, that, that is one of the big anxieties that immediately pops up when we start looking at a school particularly a school that's handed a laptop to every student or an iPad to a lot of the elementary kids, is how would we know or would it be the case that this has consequences if the, if the students end up using these, these devices too much? Now, the literature has a couple of answers for what too much would look like. The first answer, which is, is reflected in a lot of the early literature, is just that too much time spent with a screen might crowd out other healthy behaviors. And this kind of literature, of course, started with concern about television many years ago. And that is that kids will spend too much time with their Nintendo or their TV, and they just won't be exercising, and then they won't be as healthy. And that concern continues with, with laptops and with tablets. Uh, and the major concern that we have well-documented, in fact, that comes out of the, um, the, the big pediatric association as well, is the concern that it would crowd out healthy activities and they won't get as much exercise. But more recently, of course, we have some new concerns, I think particularly with internet and with social media. There's been a lot of literature tying social media use, so that would be things like Facebook and Instagram, but also a lot of people are counting things like YouTube, uh, Snapchat, certainly. There's a lot of ties between the social media use and, and mental health concerns among young people. Uh, and here the concern is, particularly for adolescents, that excessive use of social media and excessive time with these digital devices might be exacerbating uh, a trend toward depression and anxiety. And, and that's, that's become, I think, and others kind of like concerns about sociality in general uh, and, and social habits for young people. This is the big concern. Now, there's lots of debates about how, how serious these concerns are and where the good evidence is. I just saw today uh, a couple of new studies calling into question the quality of the evidence for the social media uh, leads to uh, mental health issues thesis. So uh, that, and, 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 I, and I would agree, based on my own reading of the literature, that there isn't actually as strong a connection between use of social media and mental health problems as there is for the evidence between excessive screen time and lack of exercise, for instance. <laughs> Uh, and there's also a very good evidence that excessive screen time, for instance, crowds out sleep. And that could contribute to mental health problems. But, but in general, the, the, only, the, the only evidence we have is that there is, a, there is a, a weak association in some studies between mental health and social media use for women, for young women. 
it doesn't seem to be there for young men. And the studies are so mixed and they're not really great. And so uh, a lot of this concern doesn't seem to be well-researched yet. That's a long answer. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but that's, that's my reading of where we're at. So here we were studying a, a group of Christian schools that had invested in a, a one-to-one laptop program. So each student's got a laptop for school. And so what anxieties was that generating in the parent community, even as they wanted their kids to have laptops and have the latest gear and keep up with the 21st century and, and, and get great jobs and so on? What anxieties were hanging around the edge of that move to have students learn with laptops? Yeah, this was, you know, one of the most interesting things we got to do in this study was to sit down with groups of parents, a, a number of different focus groups of parents, and, and talk to them about these things. And that was, that was really enlightening for me, even as a parent of a middle schooler, to hear other parents' concerns. And what we heard was a couple of different things, but one was, was concern about the sheer amount of time that these kids are, are using the laptops. There was a perception among some parents that the laptops were, were open and in use all the time. That school was just one constant computer screen binge, for lack of a better term. And, and, then, and then other concerns, though, were, of course, uh, about the kinds of things that were being done on the laptops. And so we had parents worried about pornography, worried about distraction, worried about social media and video games in school. And I think their perception was that these computers were were maybe doing more harm than good. Now, I'd like to say, no, first of all, that this this was probably a minority of the parents. I think just about all parents had some concerns. There were a few parents that had very serious concerns and thought that the laptops were probably probably a big problem. But those were the kind of conversations we had. And and Mm -hmm. you remember some of these as well, David, I know. Mm -hmm. And And that motivated a lot of our questions. Yeah. And the survey data also showed that a large number of the parents thought the laptops were having a positive effect on learning. Right? Yes. And so this is the, the mission of the school. And, so. and they've all chosen to send their kids in a community, in communities, I should say, for the schools that we looked at, communities where there were other options for schools, good ones. Uh, these, these parents all chose to send their kids to a school with a very aggressive pro-technology kind of policy. And they were all sure that this was this was definitely providing very significant benefits to their kids in the long mm-hmm. run in terms of technology skills. And yet, I mean, we all face these decisions where we know there's benefits and we're worried about mm-hmm. the side effects, right? So, were they right to be worried about screen time with the kids using the uh, using the devices too much? Well, you know, and you know, I think the best evidence on this comes from. Uh, from the observations. We got to send uh, people into classrooms, random observations in classrooms in elementary, middle, and high school, and we just tracked how often are the laptops open, how often are they using other devices and different kinds of technology, and in what contexts. And what we found was basically elementary kids uh, were using screens about two hours a day, middle school about two and a half, and high schoolers about, about three hours uh, out of the school day. And that was actually pretty close to the survey data we got where high schoolers reported using their laptops about three and a half hours a day during the school day. And that's, that's less than half the day. My read of this as a, as a college professor is, uh, is that three, and a half, three to three and a half hours a day for high school students using these devices doesn't seem uh, excessive at all when you compare them to people who are doing the kind of information processing work that you would imagine anywhere outside of school three hours would be pretty light, actually. White-collar work, where there's a lot of information work, reading and writing going on, that's all mediated mediated by by devices today. And so to have it be radically different in schools would actually be kind of odd. 
That said, you worry about if, if there's a consequence for particularly young kids from using this kind of device, then we would worry that it's not the right medium. But, but, but personally, I think within school, that seemed to be about right. I don't have concerns about big side effects from that level of use. So coming back to the comparisons, how did this stack up against the, the school with less technology or national samples of teenagers in general? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, we can only compare to, so we have one other school where we surveyed what was going on in the classroom. But there we didn't have the observations, we only had the surveys. And what we found at this other school was that students were using their, their laptops in school far less, maybe half the time. And the big difference that we're seeing there between the two schools is that, is that the, the, the primary school we studied had had their laptop program uh, for much longer. It was much better established. There was a lot of training that went in to, to help the teachers know how to use the technology well. And in the other, the other school that we compared them to, it was a relatively new technology program. Uh, the teachers weren't given the same intensive training about how to use the technology or when to, and it just wasn't being used nearly as intensively. And um, and there were some other differences between them as well, but we ended up seeing we ended up seeing far less computer or laptop use in the comparison school. But then comparing to a national sample of of young people of similar age, we can't compare in school time, but we do have nationally representative surveys of young people for how much they're using these devices outside of school. So we can compare the students in the in the school we studied. All right, we're using their laptops another three hours, basically, outside of school. You know, our surveys indicate that that was a mix of homework and, uh, and also entertainment and other kind of purposes as well. And that is way more than, than the national average because, because most young people don't have their own laptop. And so other students would, nationally representative study, we'd get less laptop time, more desktop computers, a lot more video games and more TV as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of the way the shift happened. Total screen time was higher for the students in our study in this school than for the national average, but not, not wildly so. Right. So the fact that there seemed to be only really a slight increase in overall screen time, going back to yeah. what you were saying earlier, suggests that at least some of this extra laptop time is replacing game console time, TV time, yep. right, other kinds of smartphone time. Right. Smartphones right. are um, now ubiquitous among high school yeah. students all over the country. Uh, and so and that's a, that's a replacement screen. It does a lot of the same things a laptop does for us these days. And so a lot of young people do have smartphones, but not laptops. And so that's what we see, mm -hmm. is the students in our schools seem to be using their laptops, but that means they were using some other devices a bit less. So, so what about bad uses? Uh, was any of this time given over to the, the darker end of the list you, you mentioned yes. a few minutes ago of, of things that, that students use in technology for? Yeah, and this was a major concern of parents, and it was an interest of ours going in from the beginning, was, to, was how are these computers actually being used? And is the school just opening the door to some of these worst, uh, you know, darkest parts of the Internet? And, and, and the answer, of course, in a big school is that, yes, we saw examples of students doing things they definitely shouldn't have been doing. And, we, and the school administrators could tell us that they had students that um, had engaged in watching violent uh, things, but also they had sort of a regular stream of students who at home, generally outside of the school, would use their laptop to consume pornography. And uh, in middle school and high school, there was, it was a regular job of one of the administrators to, uh, to catch these cases. Uh, and side note, they installed software onto all the laptops 
that allowed them to track and catch certain kinds of, of internet use uh, in, in all of their devices. So that if a kid took out their school-issued laptop and decided to, to consume pornography, it would probably be caught by this and then the school administrator would be able to see it, and then they, in turn, would have a conversation with, with the child's parents. Uh, and this was someone's job, was mm-hmm. to monitor this and talk to the students. And so they did actually, assuming the students had not all figured out how to get around the system, which I, which I don't think they, they did, they had a good, a good bead on how often this was mm-hmm. happening. And it was, as you would expect, uh, something that came up both at the middle school and high school. Just a, a side note on that. It was it was interesting to me that one of the um, administrators talked about how they one of the things they didn't foresee was the amount of strain that this would place on the person who had to view all of the porn and violence yeah. to verify that it was on student machines. I mean, it's kind of like articles I've read about Facebook employees as well, right? It's sort of experiencing yeah. you know post traumatic stress disorder right? from from what they have to view, and so they you know with hindsight they felt like they should have been providing counselling for the administrator whose job. It was who had to do this or found some way of sharing that burden. So that, to me, just raised some interesting questions about what burdens one individual was asked to carry for the for the rest of the community in terms of sort of this, this content policing. It really was. And I, I, I remember that moment, and I was not expecting that either. And um, I think it's one of the pieces that we didn't anticipate that we gained in doing this big research project and doing these extensive interviews is one of these little nuggets of advice for school administrators uh, is you know share the burden on this thing and think carefully if you're going to have community standards about what goes on with these devices, which I would hope that Christian schools would, uh, that in turn you also think about how you're going to enforce it, both for the students uh, but also for the administrators doing the enforcing, how you're going to talk to the parents about this stuff, and make sure that whole process uh, is both just but also humane and, and, and all of that for mm-hmm. all of the people involved. So was the filtering working? Was that a, was that a, a good solution to keeping the bad stuff at the gates? You know, that's a really interesting question, and one of the ones that I wanted to to delve into right from the beginning. And so we we hit that one pretty hard. And you know, the answer weirdly is kind of yes and no. So what we found is that uh, the kids in our study uh, were engaged, were consuming pornography far less than their peers. Uh, national average, uh, it was something like 11%, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but something like 11% of the young people in our sample said that they had uh, intentionally sought out sexually explicit material in in the recent month or something like that. Uh, And then the closest study I could find nationally um, surveying similar young people who were also Christians found noticeably higher rates. And I, I only remember the numbers uh, broken up by gender. So it was like four or five percent of Christian young ladies and thirty percent of Christian young men, and the, the equivalent for our sample was something like like three in twenty. Um, I should probably submit the actual numbers for you, David, before you post this online, so you can. You <laughs> well, can people can check that. them in the book. So. Yeah, or, or even better. <laughs> so, you know, this you yeah. know this is all subject to a certain amount of memory error. So yeah. by all means, buy the book and turn to the chapter about filtering. Yeah, uh, I mean, so the take home is that. So just to, just to clarify here, the students in this school were coming out lower on porn use, not only than the general national average, but lower than other Christian teenagers. Yes, so right, wasn't, yes. So was, yeah, and this you know making these this is one of those places where making good comparisons is tricky and important. So we wanted to compare these young people to young people overall, but also to young young Christians, and we found that the kids in the school were indeed consume or they, they reported. Let's be careful here. They reported using or consuming pornography less than we observe 
other Christian young people reporting in other studies. Now, on the flip side, we also wanted to find out whether or not the monitoring, the filtering was the thing causing mm -hmm. this. And that's actually- Something seems to be helping. Right, something's uh, doing uh, right, right? <laughs> so someone or something in this community is going well with those numbers, uh, but it's difficult to know what. And we, we cannot run an experiment, unfortunately, that's as clean as I would like, where we randomly filter and monitor some kids in the school and not other kids, and we turn it on and off over time and see how their behavior changes. Because, you know, real life doesn't work like a science experiment. But what we were and able to do— And because you can't actually subject children to bad stimuli it, randomly you just know, to it turns answer out, your scientific questions. It turns out that there are <laughs> rules about this. And yeah. yes, you're not, allowed to, um, you're not allowed to experiment on children. And of course, we wouldn't want to. But what we, what we did do is we compared two schools with different policies. And the two schools are very similar. Uh, I mentioned the other school already when we were talking about screen use. But they both have a one-to-one -one laptop program. They're similar demographically. And what we saw was that was that the the filtering, or I should say the filtering was, was there in both cases, but the monitoring was only there in the primary school we studied, which is to say that only in the in in the first school was it the case that the school could tell if a student went home, went into a back room, searched up something pornographic and viewed it and then closed their computer and walked away. They were able to tell, even if nobody saw them, that that had happened. And that so, just, so just clarify the terms here. So filtering is basically just trying to screen out bad websites so that nobody can access them. The monitoring is when the school can tell what the student is doing on their laptop and, yes. and it makes a flag pop up. Yeah, the so, filter only yeah. impacts the school network. Right. So in lots of schools have these. You just make there's some sites that you just can't access while you're at, on the school and through that network. But, you know, if you go outside the school and you connect to the wireless at the library or at Starbucks or at home, well, then then those limits are gone. And so that's where the monitoring technology came in. And the thing is, we didn't see an impact of that monitoring. We didn't see a strong and, and the evidence is a little bit mixed here. We can go back and forth. We looked at a lot of different questions, but we didn't see a big impact for that monitoring on the student behavior. We, we did see the low consumption, but we can't say for sure that the monitoring is what caused it. It could mm -hmm. have been a lot of other things. Which, which, which is interesting to me because the, the monitoring, again, I think in the wider culture, is starting to raise ethical questions about <laughs> yeah. to what degree we should be monitoring each other all the time in the name of collective safety, right, and, and the loss of privacy. And, and, you know, should the school be monitoring my child at the weekend in their home yeah. because they're using a school device? <laughs> so, so if the monitoring isn't, adding a huge increment of good, mm -hmm. that's a potentially significant finding. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I think about these things, uh, you know, 50, you know, I, th I think about 50% of the benefit of the monitoring probably is the administrator being able to talk to a parent and say, you know what, we're doing something about this. I know mm -hmm. you're worried. I'm worried. Uh, pornography is scary, particularly for young kids. And so if I were an administrator, I might keep doing it, even if it wasn't having the benefit. But on the flip side, if this were a public school, Right, I could see there being a lawsuit challenging, um, you know, a public entity monitoring student behavior outside of school school bounds, and I'm not sure how that lawsuit would come mm -hmm. out. Um, there are really significant concerns about that, and and they're not easy questions to answer. Mm -hmm.
So. so, so another angle on this that that has just been fascinating me since we since we dug through some of this data was that when we did focus groups with students and teachers and so on, there was this phrase I heard a couple of times of, of avoiding bad stuff on the internet, right? <laughs> and 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 the role of the filter was to keep out the, the bad, bad stuff, stuff on the internet, right? And 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 that in people's minds, bad stuff on the internet mostly meant porn and certain kinds of violence, uh, and uh, although yeah. oddly not movie violence or whatever. But you know, um, it's true. We always talk about sexually explicit and violent material and we surveyed about it but in the end nobody actually seemed worried about violent material right it's like a, it's part of the Porn category was the major, but it's majorly, was the major it's, thing it's, it's sex and naked people but right? then, this is what scares us but then talking to one administrator and to several students we then started hearing this story about well you know what these days we don't actually catch the students that often using porn on the school computers because they know the filters in place yeah. and there's other devices they can use to maybe do that but shopping in class was was extremely frequent and so there was these yeah. these poignant examples of students quite politely saying to us well the great thing about having a laptop to learn with is when i'm in bible class and i finish typing down what the teacher said i can go shopping right so so i sort of have this picture of like a, you know a child sitting in bible class learning about the sermon on the mount or something while while kind of you know shopping for truck tires or shoes just to name two examples that we saw while we were doing our observations um they were on not laptop in class and the filter's not going to pick that up because oh, no. Because shopping is not bad stuff on the internet, right? So this is sort That's of true. another another weakness in the whole filter mentality, right? Is is that is that what what's actually bad for us, uh, and what's the range of what Christians might think is bad for us? Um, well, you know, and the school did delve into this uh, a little bit. In that they had they had a broader conception of what they wanted to keep out. And that they didn't just ban pornography, they also like banned all social media, mm-hmm. right? So that you couldn't actually access any YouTube videos. It wasn't just the questionable ones. And they couldn't get on Facebook and they couldn't get on Instagram. Uh, and so there was this sense in in the policymakers, the administrators' minds that they... They wanted to have uh, a certain narrow band of internet use going on in the school. But again, it wasn't shopping that was the problem. And, mm-hmm. and you're right, they were not shopping for Bible commentaries, right? right. Uh, and so there's a whole bunch of things you could imagine a kid doing during class that wouldn't be helpful, wouldn't be edifying, but also were not bothered to filter, mm-hmm. right? And in my, in, my, in my classes, when I have laptops up and and I have my kids in the back of the room because they're home for a holiday. They'll come up to me afterwards and my kids will say, Dad, your students were not taking notes. They were on ESPN or they were playing the snake game or something of the sort. And we all know this happens, right? And this may be one of the big temptations with technology is not the things we fear most. It's these other more mundane temptations um, that are even more difficult to regulate Mm -hmm. because of their abundance but did prove to be a big issue in the school was this mm-hmm. distraction, the, the commercialism, but also uh, the constant varied sources of distraction that these technological devices created for students. And that, and that suggests to me that just filtering certain things out that, that are you know, rightly socially unacceptable is, is not going to be enough. There's going to be a question yeah. of how we actually build the kinds of communal habits that enable us to make good choices when we're together. Yeah. And filters aren't quite going to get that done. So we, we need to draw to a close here, oh, but yeah. and there's lots more specific findings in the book for, the book for people excellent. to explore, lots of data tables and, and, and examples and interviews and so on. Yeah. But sort of jumping right up to, to kind of a thousand feet, what, what was 
what were any big overall takeaways that you took out of the project in in general? What 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 do you feel you learned? Well, you know, I I was forced to to think really carefully about what it is we're doing when we do school, right? And and because when you start asking these specific questions and you try to get good, consistent answers to when should we be using these devices and when shouldn't we and what are they for, well, then you start asking what is school for and, and what does it mean to have a school community? And, and one of the things which I had never questioned before, but I began to question in light of our conversations with the students and the teachers, were questions uh, not unlike the ones we've been talking about, like about a student who's shopping using their laptop in class. Right. Is this something that is, is, is their individual right to go shopping when they have their work done? Or is it the case that having a school community means that one student should not be doing something distracting, either for themselves or for someone else? And, you know, in different environments, we have these norms that develop about when technology use is appropriate and when it isn't. And if I was in a meeting with two or three others and we were putting our heads into a problem, and when one person stopped talking, they flipped open their phone and they started buying tires, we would all interpret that as a really rude thing to do. Uh, because, of course, they're not contributing to the collective endeavor. And this is the big question that these devices raise right, for schooling, is to what degree are we engaging in a collective endeavor that requires a certain set of habits and virtues that maintain a collective learning environment? And how do we create a culture so that everyone understands that collective endeavor and but uses their technology in that way? Because frankly, these technologies were not built for collective use most of the time. They were built for individual use and for individual gratification, and in some cases for literally shutting out the world around you. And so we have to contend with that uh, when we're thinking about how to use these devices for educational purposes, because they're super powerful and they allow us to do so many wonderful things in terms of processing and sharing information and collaborating across long distances that uh, I don't see the Luddite approach as a feasible one, but we do have to ask these big questions then. Mm -hmm. uh, and those questions will remain after you read our book, but they will be more focused if you read our book <laughs> carefully and you will ask the questions better. <laughs> Yeah, like I say, lots more topics in the book and uh, and and also in 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 other podcasts and uh, and also you have a personal website for some of your, your own writing. Tell us the address. Yeah, if you go to stephenmcmullen.com, you will you'll find a lot of the things that I've written, um, and then um, I'm on on Facebook and LinkedIn. And um, and these kind of places, but not and too depressed as a result yet. I am no, I'm not yet too depressed uh, as a result of. But about Twitter actually does kind of depress me, and so I've stayed off Twitter. But that's mm -hmm. mostly my own incapacity to keep up. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks, David. You've been listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. Learn more at www.pedagogy.net. 